The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in January 2008. Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John Von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. Today we welcome Frances Sternhagen, the acclaimed actress. Hi, Franny. Hello. Let me just take a moment to uh, to kind of go through your, your bio. Certainly television audiences have known you over the years as Cliff Clavin's mother on Cheers and also as Millicent Carter, the grandmother, I guess, of Dr. Carter on ER, and as Bunny McDougal on uh, Sex in the City. <laughs> That's Trey's... the one that I get the most now. <laughs> you get the most? <laughs> oh, yes. People see you on the street, they uh-huh. say Bunny. <laughs> the little, the young women particularly. I'll bet. Theater audiences have known you certainly for many, many different shows, probably most recently uh, Seascape a couple of years ago, uh, Steel Magnolias, and seven different shows for which you have Tony nominations, winning the Tony twice, once for The Heiress and again for The Good Doctor, the other shows for which you were nominated for Broadway for Tony's, Mornings at Seven, On Golden Pond, Angel, Equus, and The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window, and also I should mention a Drama Desk Award for your role in Equus. So, where does one begin? How about the very beginning? (laughs) Well, don't go too far back. Well, I I read somewhere originally you were a teacher. You were teaching acting and theater, and then you became an actor yourself. Well, I was actually teaching just about everything extracurricular. Uh When I got out of college, I didn't know what I was going to do, and I was offered a job, a new job at Milton Academy outside of Boston, and where Stephen King's children, I think, went, uh-huh. doing uh, teaching, singing, square dancing, modern dance, and dramatics from ages kindergarten all the way up through seniors of the girls. Uh-huh. And then there was uh, something I read that you were at Vassar, and you acted in a, in a dining hall uh, uh, Shakespeare play. Oh, that was, was that? at the Madeira School in outside in Virginia, where uh, the English teacher thought that the day students uh-huh. should do something of some recognition. So, and this was a girls' school again. Uh-huh. So, she, there were three of us who uh-huh. were kind of best friends, doing Richard the Second, and I was Richard the Second, and we spent our rehearsal just alone. Nobody was rehearsing with us for about three days, just giggling. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, that the night before the performance, I realized that I was going to be in front of people saying words. And so I learned it. And we got into the dining hall. And of course, my friends started giggling. And I just thought, no, you don't. <laughs> and I had to say, give me the glass and therein will I read. And I did that whole speech and then hurled the mirror onto the dining room floor and it shattered. Yeah all into the first row, and I got to be elected the head of the drama club because of that, because I'd broken the mirror, I'm quite sure. But how do you go from learning Richard II overnight to then you're teaching young children dramatics to getting into the business yourself? How did you, There are probably a lot of drama teachers out there who've always harbored that dream. Well, I don't know. You know, a lot of it is luck, I think. But I tried to get into what was then the Brattle Theater, which was a bunch of uh, ex-GIs at Harvard who wanted to put on plays. And 
they were finishing. They, you know, they were so successful, they began coming to New York. And so that group was ending, and I didn't know that, but somebody got me an audition. And I did five very different auditions, very, very different things for this young man with spectacles and a tweed jacket with the little leather patches. And at the end of it, he said in his most kind of Harvard, Groton, Harvard accent, Miss Sternhagen, if you want to be an actress, I advise you to give up teaching because you do everything as if you're leading the Girl Scouts onto the hockey field. <laughs> and I think I got so mad that I went back and told the the head of the school, you know, I really think if I'm going to do this, I better do it. And she said, well, I knew this would happen. So I left and went back home to Washington, D.C., where there were two theaters at the time. There was the National Theater, well, three, uh, and Arena Stage had started. It was in its second year. And I auditioned, of course, for Zelda Fitchander for the Arena Stage and got the same response. So I thought, what am I going to do? Um, Catholic University. Okay, I'll go to Catholic University. And I went Father Gilbert Hartke, who ran the drama department. I said, uh, what do I do to get into your plays? And he said, you have to take a course. And I said, what do you recommend? How about acting? Okay. So I took acting <laughs> under a philosophy teacher. It was fun. Didn't teach me a whole lot about acting, but I got into the first two plays, and Zelda Fitchhandler came and said, well, you want to join the Arena Stage Company? So, so this, this is, is fine. And this is, if I remember the chronology right, about 1949, 1950? No, it was no? 52. 52. Yeah. Okay. So Arena Stage then was your first paying My job. first paying, paying job. job. And I think we got $55 a week. That's probably big money in those days. Well, it wasn't bad. <laughs> you could pay for... Um, share an apartment with somebody, but I, of course, lived at home, which was lucky. And in the very early days of what really was one of the first major regional theaters in the country, um, it was a fairly illustrious group yeah. pretty early on. Can you tell us about some of the other people you were there with? Well, George Grisard was there, who I just worked with uh, a year and a half ago, I guess it was, in Seascape. And we'll come to Seascape later in the program. Yeah. We'll talk to you about that. But George... Um, I think uh, Jerry Hyken, Lester Rawlins, um, Dick Sykes, they were mostly Washington people. Since then, of course, they bring people down from New York and from wherever um, and showed off. They, they had a number of people who were the steady company, and I became one of the members of the company. And were you performing in rep? Was it that kind of structure? Not rep. I don't think... I really don't think they do that. APA did that for a while. But it's very expensive because you have to keep changing the scenery. So at Arena, they just did one after another. And that, I think, is what most regional theaters here do. So what were your earliest roles? Uh, Marjorie Pinchwife in The Country Wife was the first one. And then uh, Alma Weinmiller's mother in Summer and Smoke. Wait, wait, how old were you playing the mother? I was a few years older than the woman playing Alma. <laughs> I mean, a few years younger, yes, than the woman playing Alma. Uh, but uh, I can barely remember now. But I've read in things. interviews that when people ask you about your favorite shows, you mention The Country Wife. Is it oh, simply because it yeah, was the first? No. I did it again down at when 
the Renata Theater was on Bleecker Street, and Bill Ball uh, and Stephen Porter. Stephen Porter uh, directed The Country Wife, and thank goodness I got a chance to play it again because I really had learned how to play it by then. And I remember Colleen Dewhurst coming uh, to see it, and she laughed so loud that the, you know some of the audience were turning around kind of <laughs> in hinting that she shouldn't laugh so loud, but it really was fun. And, um, that letter scene was just a delight to do. It's such well, that, a, uh, that was in 1957, two years earlier, 1955. You made both your Broadway debut and your off-Broadway debut in New York. I guess that's right. Yeah. How did you make the move from Washington to New York? What, what, what took you here? Well, I went to the Olney Theater after Arena just for a change. Mm-hmm. Um, and I met my to be husband really there. I had met him before because we did Skin of Our Teeth at Catholic University. And we had just gotten to know each other a little bit. But then being at Alney for the summer, we got to know each other better. We both decided to go up to New York together. My father had just died. If he had not, he'd been ill for 13 years. And my mother was very glad to have me around when he was ill. But once he died, she said, in effect go where you have to go. So Tom and I came up together, kind of holding hands as we crossed on the ferry, like Edna St. Vincent Millay. (laughs) I should just mention Tom Carlin. Tom Carlin was my husband, yes. And um, we started and were very fortunate. I came up to study with Sanford Meisner, and we both got into the same production of Thieves' Carnival. I had done Thieves' Carnival down at Arena with George Grizzard, playing the ingenue. They had already cast the ingenue, so I played the sophisticated older cousin or whatever, which I was really not very good at and not very right for. But it was my first job at the Cherry Lane, and I was living right uh, in back of the Cherry Lane. So it was very easy to go to work. I've never had that wonderful ability to sort of roll out of bed to work (laughs) again. But John mentioned, you know, that 55 was the year of your Broadway debut, a production of, of, of Skin, Skin of, of Our Teeth, teeth. a revival. Yeah. But, you know, a very starry revival. Oh, yes. Mary Martin, Helen Hayes, Florence Reed, and George Abbott playing Mr. Antrobus. So tell us about that production and at a very young age, working with, with people of that stature. Oh. And indeed, you, were you understudying some of those I was folks? understudying Mary Mar. I was understudying those three women, mm-hmm. not George Abbott. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell us about it. Well, it was very interesting. Uh, Alan Schneider directed it, and he, he never had a really easy time with big-name stars. He was much more comfortable directing his own company, say. But... It was an exciting thing to do. We were going to Paris. I mean, it was called A Salute to France. And this production went to Paris and then came back and played Washington and Chicago and New York, all sort of briefly. But it was was exciting. And Helen Hayes was a superb Mrs. Antrobus. The speech that she had about... um, tomato or tomato, as she said, um, was always funny. Mary Martin was, I'd say, probably a little 
more Nellie Forbish than Sabina. Sabina's kind of uh, has a real sharpness to her that Mary Martin wasn't used to playing. Um, George Abbott, of course, was George Abbott. (laughs) Acting with George Abbott. I mean, when you hear Alan Schneider and George Abbott, Alan Schneider, a Uh, major director, George Abbott, a legendary, truly legendary director. (laughs) What was that all about? Well, George Abbott um, was probably the easiest actor for Alan to direct. Anytime he had a suggestion, Alan, of course, listened completely. Well, Alan listened to all of them, but George Abbott really knew what he was talking about. And George Abbott just had, there was no effort in his performance. It was such an easy performance and funny. And um, I I really think that there were, I can remember when we had our first run through with an audience, no costumes or anything. And Alan didn't want to come up. You know, everybody was applauding and people were bowing. Then it was director, director, applauding. Alan didn't want to come. And Mary Martin, in her best Texas voice, said, Come on, Alan, don't be tacky. (laughs) (laughs) What could he do? He had to come up after that. Now, you were a young actress in your mid-twenties making a Broadway debut on the same stage as some of the, the biggest names in theater of 1950, in fact, of, of all time. Was that somewhat daunting to well, be really on Well, really, no, because I had very little to do, believe uh-huh. me. I was a muse. But you were understudying was, them as well. Yes, that, that was daunting, but I sort of suspected that I would never have to go on. Did you ever go on? No, no. In fact, it was a little... Um, Worrisome that when we got to Washington, where I had played Sabina, Richard Coe, who was the critic for the Washington Post, made the mistake of saying, wouldn't it be lovely if Mary Martin let Frances Sternhagen play her part Mm -hmm. uh, just for a couple of nights so that the two Washington girls, Frances Sternhagen and Helen Hayes, could play together? And I just... (laughs) I just thought, oh, God. And Mary Martin didn't speak to me for several days. <laughs> I mean, there was, she thought probably that I had instigated that. And Alan even asked me, how did that? I said, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> just the, the author knew you were from Washington and figured it was a oh, good idea. I know. Well, I mean, he had, he had reviewed things that I'd been uh-huh, in, right. both at Catholic University and at Arena Stage, and had seen our skin of our teeth that Catholic University had done. <laughs> and so, you know, he thought he was probably being clever or nice or something and didn't realize that he might have been causing a little problem. Or maybe he did know. Maybe he liked that kind of thing. It's not long after this that you began to build a rather large family with your husband, who you yeah. mentioned. How much were you able to work in that period or how much were you really? I just kept going. I kept going as much as I could because I was afraid to stop that nobody would hire me if I, you know, really quit for a while. And Tom was very supportive. The two of us, we're just, um, you know, we would just take turns. And we had a couple of good babysitter types that were very, it was very fortunate that we found them. But um, it wasn't easy, God knows, really. It's terribly hard to keep going when you 
have children. Well, it's tough enough for anybody working in the theater and tough enough for any mother to raise kids when she's working, but to be working in the theater, raising kids, and your husband also working as an actor in the theater. What what did you do other than hire babysitters? I mean, how did you find Well, as I say, we, we did take turns, but, you know, actors don't work as much as people think. For one mm-hmm. thing, you go out... Well, I was in the APA production of The Cocktail Party by T.S. Eliot at one point. And my two daughters told me later that they kind of resented the fact that mom went out every night to a cocktail party. <laughs> and they were home. You know, why Why didn't dad go to the cocktail party too? So it that, you know, caused a few little problems, but well, not we, much. We've heard other people on this program say that they either brought their children to the theater with them and kept them backstage, or in one case, actually put the kid in the first or second row center so they could keep an eye on them during the play. Oh, that's funny. Did you used to take your kids to the theater? No, I tried it a couple of times, but first of all, they got to be too many of them. Uh-huh. And uh, where we lived was a very um, neighbor, real neighborhood, and there were about 60 or 65 children in the neighborhood. So they had plenty of people to play with, Mm -hmm. which was great. It's not like living in an apartment in New York. And also it was a a different era than it is currently. Yeah. Yeah, Growing up in the 50s and 60s was different than it is currently. Oh, very, yeah. You mentioned APA APA and later APA Phoenix, and um, a few weeks ago on this program, Jack O'Brien was with us and and talking about those years. and. It's really it was an extraordinary company, and yeah. obviously everyone has has different memories of even the same things. In fact, you were in one of Jack's first shows as a director, right? Um, but can you talk about that group and what was going on with in APA at, at the time you were well, there? Well, it was all really started by Ellis Rab. Ellis had the inspiration, and Ellis had the desire to do it. And apparently, because he and Bill Ball had both been at Carnegie Mellon together, um, they were in competition. And uh, Bill started the company out in San Francisco, and they were always kind of competing with each other, which is kind of funny. But um, I think Ellis and Rosemary, Rosemary Harris, um, really had... um, something that's never been done since. It was such an unusual thing to start a repertory company. And they got some wonderful people. Richard Easton is a dear friend, and he's so good. He was one of Paul and Nancy Sparrow. Paul Sparrow and Nancy Marchand were part of the original company. George Grizzard was part of the original company. Betty Miller, um, quite a lot of people. Donald Moffat. And actually, Donald Moffat and Jack O'Brien together directed Cockadoodle Dandy, which was Jack's first directing job. And it may have been Donald's, too. I can't remember. So how did you fall in with this crowd? Well, I think once you started working off-Broadway in the 50s, you got to know who else was working off-Broadway and in what. And I think the people who started APA together were people who uh, liked to do classics and plays that were um, not just... uh, Well, it's funny. I I don't quite know how to say it because Circle in the Square, for example, did some Tennessee Williams and 
the O'Neill work was being done at Circle in the Square. They did more American plays, except for the restoration plays that they did. And, of course, people sort of bounced back and forth. And the people who did some of the things at Circle and at the Cherry Lane, which is what I did, um, then were asked, say, to Thompson was another one, were asked by Ellis if we were interested in joining this company. And, of course, we all said yes. But some of us were able to do more than others. And the Stratford, Connecticut, several people had worked there at Stratford, Connecticut. So it it sort of got to be a group that knew what each other liked to do and what each other was good at. And so when APA actually settled into being a company, they I think they kind of knew who they wanted to hire and who they wanted to have in the company. Trish Connolly was one of them. Was working in a company like that, was, was there a different way of working? Yes, I think so, uh, somewhat, but not, not significantly. Hmm. You did just work from the beginning of a play until you thought it was ready to go on. And sometimes, of course, they would work on a play and then put it off and not do it yet. But they would work on it, and then when it was time and they were going to pull one off, then they would work on it a little bit more and then put it in. That was That's, that's quite unusual. Yeah. Well, yeah. that's the that's somewhat the repertory, I think, system. Hmm. Well, you, you talk about your children growing up in a community and kind of, you know, the neighborhood feeling, and now you... What you're saying strikes me as kind of the same way in the theater community, kind of a neighborhood, everybody knowing each other and working together. Is that still the case today, do you think, or was it a different atmosphere back then? In the theater? In the theater, yeah, yeah. Well, it's hard to say because I'm not sure that it's very different. The only thing that's different is that APA was really unique. Now, when you work in a regional theater, they're like the way... Um, arena was, which is they go from one play to another. They don't do the repertory. And I will say that when APA went into the Lyceum, uh, when they changed the sets, which they had to, like, they had to change the set from a matinee to an evening, because it was rap. That's the kind of thing that built the expenses up to the point where it it could not be sustained. And they even did get breaks from the unions. They had people working who were union members, but working at the Lyceum, I I think, uh, under slightly looser circumstances, just because they agreed to or whatever. But that's what I think is different now. I I just don't know that anybody can try the... APA system. Mm-hmm. Well, in this same, just slightly behind after the period when you worked at APA, you were also doing a number of shows for the Repertory Theater at Lincoln Center, Jules Irving and, and that. Well, that group. was after. Yes, after. Yeah. yeah. Um, was there a different mode of working? Was there a difference when you worked with one company or the other? Well, no, because a lot of the same people were, were there. Ellis actually worked and directed there and uh, Phil there were quite a few, and the ones that came from San Francisco um, were used to working in a company and working together. You just didn't... You had occasional stars, um, and Bancroft did something, for example, and um, 
Colleen did something, and they were not members of the Lincoln Center company. Colleen but you, Dewhurst. Colleen Dewhurst. Yeah. But you say the Lincoln Center Repertory. It's not a repertory mm-hmm. company. Well, it was called the Repertory I Company know. at Lincoln Center, but I they know. didn't do that, huh? No, no. And um, I really just think a lot of that is because of expense. Yeah. At the uh, beginning, I, I named seven different shows for which you received Tony nominations. The first one I want to ask you about was in 1972, The Sign in Sidney Brewstein's Window. Only five actual performances, yet yeah, you received a Tony nomination. So obviously well, somebody listen, noticed. Somebody sometimes. Saw it. <laughs> first of all, it's the part. Uh-huh. The woman who had done it before, I think it was, um, gosh, I wanted to say Alice Ghostly, but it was, I think, her friend. Isn't that funny? Anyway, the woman who'd done it before, uh-huh. she got the Tony. Uh-huh. And it's a note, it's sort of a noticeable part in an odd, different play by Lorraine Hansberry. And um, I just think I, I also got a Tony nomination for a musical in a year that there just weren't many others. You just think, oh, well... Thank you, but I really didn't deserve that. <laughs> <laughs> well, what, what was what was this part that made it so interesting? What, what was the character? You mean the character in the Simon yeah, Sidney yeah. Brewstein's window? Yes, yes. She was the kind of um, odd, straight, um, conventional sister to the offbeat sister who married um, Sidney Brewstein. Mm. And Sidney Brewstein was mm, leftist and political and... Uh, at that time, lived in the village, and so on. The sister lived, I think, in New Jersey, and had um, just had her own opinions. And it was such a contrast with the rest of the play that it, you know that may have had something to do with it. I don't know. And so it, it made the the uh, character really stood out then. Yeah. From the rest of the. Well. A little bit, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it must have before, because uh, she got, you know, the woman who played it before got the Tony <laughs> as well. Well, two years later, you did get the Tony yourself for The Good Doctor. Yes. Oh, that was just so, so fortunate. Well, we should explain, The Good Doctor, not a title people hear very often these days, but by Neil Simon. I know. Based on the works of Chekhov. Yes. Yeah. Now, we sh- I also want to say, you were in an illustrious cast, small cast. Oh, there yes. were only five of you. Yes. But Renee Abergenois, Marcia Mason, uh, Barney Hughes, and Christopher Plummer. Yeah. Great company. Wonderful. Tell us about that show, because it's not one that's heard about a lot these days. Well, it, no, and it was, it was based on Chekhov's short stories. And the stories, Neil had a... I think an unusual sense of the Chekhov's uh, sensibility. The, it didn't seem like Neil Simon, and yet done at the height of his popularity. Absolutely, which is why I think he uh, decided to do it. But um, what was interesting was that I was asked by an agent when I was doing a musical in Bucks County, an agent who was married to one of the chorus. I, he called and he said, may I submit you for the new Neil Simon play? And I thought, I'll never get a Neil Simon play. Sure, okay. <laughs> so I forgot completely about it. And Barney Hughes called me about uh, two months later and said, 
Um, A.J. Antoon is directing this new play, uh, Chekhov Short Stories by Neil Simon, and they're looking for an older woman. Would you be interested? Yes, says I, forgetting completely that I'd been submitted. Came in, got it. And Manny Eisenberg said, um, who's your agent? And I mentioned who my agent, who had put me up for the musical that I had done, completely forgetting that I had been submitted by another agent. So Manny called him, and the other agent called me furious mm-hmm. and you know, said, I submitted you. For, oh, my God. Oh, I'm so sorry. I completely <laughs> forgot. So I said, I'll see if my agent, who is now my agent, Jeff Hunter, I said, I'll see if Jeff will split the commission. Jeff was willing to split the commission. And I called the other agent back. And the other agent had the most wonderful response. It was such an agent's response. He said, well, all right, but... He has all the fun of negotiating. <laughs> and that's, of course, why we have agents. Of but, course. But you had the fun on working on this show with that cast. Oh, I mean, yes. Oh, I loved it. I got Chris Plummer got the giggles almost every night. It was just wonderful. I mean, the audience wouldn't know, but he did. It, it was just so much fun to work on that one particular thing called the defenseless creature, where the, I played this impossible woman coming into a bank when the bank manager, Chris, had gout and couldn't move and was in pain. And she just keeps pushing to get what she wants. And she's impossible, which is as close to Neil Simon, you know, as you could get. (laughs) Somehow, Neil Simon adapting Chekhov sounds like an oxymoron. Uh, (laughs) It worked. It did well. It didn't work enough uh, because it only lasted five months. Do you you think people came in expecting one thing because of Neil Simon's name and getting another? Probably. I don't know. I really don't know because the people who saw it just loved it. Hmm. Well, right on the heels of The Good Doctor came Equus, for which, of course, you were nominated for a Tony as well. Now, which agent got you that job? (laughs) Well, actually, I I wrote to John Dexter. Uh I wrote to the director. And I don't even know if he got the letter, but I I think Jeff did submit me. But John Dexter, I wrote him when I read Walter Kerr's review of the play, and I thought, I want to be in that. He had seen the London production? Yeah. yeah, Huh. Yeah. And I read for it and got it, which was very fortunate. Were you doing The Good Doctor at that time when you you wrote it? I can't remember whether I was doing it or whether I'd finished. It was just about that. Probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And so what what was the role then in Equus? The mother, mm-hmm. the mother of the boy. And it was a lot of the success of that play was the direction, I think, just this extraordinary use of men playing horses with hoofs and and heads on their heads and making that sound of the horses on the, the uh, round. It was like a boxing ring. And it was very exciting. But very, how could you different. know from reading a review that the, the the women's roles in it were were something for you? I how know. much it detail was about could there the, have been? He he wrote about the play in a way that made me think I want to be in that play, and then I read it and thought this is the part I can do, and it was. Uh, it was fortunate that I got to do it because it, it was such, again, it was a terrific company. We had a, a very good time. 
Well, you were in uh, Marion Seldes yeah. was in it, and Marianne. ultimately succeeded you in your role. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, and how many different um, boys, and how many how many different I psychiatrists did you play with? Three boys and three. We actually had four, but I I didn't stay for the fourth psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. Ian Holm came in after I left. I had to leave. My mother died, and I had to go take care of her house and her, you know, all of this stuff. So I had to quit. So Anthony Hopkins, Richard Burton, Anthony Tony Perkins. Perkins yeah. as, as, and those were the people I played with. Right. And yeah. and Peter Firth Peter, originally, yes. and then... Uh, um, Tommy Hulse. Tom Hulse, right. Yeah. And Alan... We won't. We won't push it. No, it's just gone right out of my head. But my children's names go out of my head too. So it's not <laughs> well, you, you give six of them, so it's not <laughs> easy to remember all six. Sometimes. <laughs> no. Angel came along uh, right after Equus, and uh, you played Eliza Gant in that. Yeah, I did. And that's why I did it. I wanted uh, to play Eliza Gant. Uh-huh. I must a, say that I'm not sure that Eliza Gant should have been hoofing around and singing and dancing, but. Uh, it was fun to play her. Well, is this the musical you alluded to before? Because it's, it's the one musical uh, that, that we spotted on your resume. I know. I, I really am not. Well, for one thing, um, I got mugged in California Ooh. in 85. And mm. my voice kind of got, uh, I think my one vocal cord got a little oh, damaged. Dear. So it's not, uh, it, I just hmm. didn't want to do to try even to do musicals. But for that, that one musical, yeah. whatever its uh, assets or problems may have been, was that really a different challenge for you going into a musical? Oh, Given yes. all of this incredible classic and yeah. new play experience? Well, accepting that I had done a musical of Quality Street down at Bucks County, which was the thing I was doing um, when we had that agent uh, want to submit me for the yeah the good doctor. But I enjoyed doing musicals, but there, and I asked, you know, Christine Ebersole, who is so brilliant and um, has done a number of musicals and has an absolutely mellifluous voice. I asked her which is harder for her musicals or straight plays, and she right away said musicals. Hmm. And I think, for one thing, you have to kind of keep your voice in shape all the time. And you have to think of yourself, I think, as a good singer. Hmm. And I never have... My singing has... The singing that I've enjoyed the most has been uh, singing in choirs and groups. Hmm. So the solo singing was not something that I reached for. Hmm. Well, we're talking about, you know, how you got shows. Your next Broadway show ultimately is a show that people have heard about, maybe know better through the film version, but you were under 50 years old, and yet you were cast in On Golden Pond. Oh, yes. Well, I've been, you know, I was cast as Alma Weinmiller's mother <laughs> at Arena Stage. So what's that about? I don't know. I, I really don't know. My mother, um, my mother and father had a lot of older friends, and... Um, when I was little, my best friend, uh, my next-door neighbor, and was a little girl the same age I was, we used to play a um, game 
which originated because my mother had bought two new lawn chairs, which we sat in the back backyard, and we discovered that they collapsed under you if you know if you really wanted them to. And we made up this game of two elderly ladies who were kind of silly and thought each other. They thought themselves queen of the hill. They thought they were better than anybody else. And they were, we made up stories and games. In, and of course, it all started with them going to a fancy garden party and collapsing in the lawn chairs. I mean, that was the basis of it. So I think that right from the beginning I was playing elderly ladies. <laughs> and I don't know why, but um, Craig Anderson called me and asked me uh, to if I wanted to do this play down at the Hudson Guild uh, about to uh, an elderly couple. It was, I guess my daughter and my husband both said, you really, you know it's sort of like your mother. Why don't you do it? It's, it's like your mother. So I did it, and it was fun, but both Tom Aldrich and I were, of course, too young. And then when Catherine Hepburn, not only did she do the movie uh, very successfully, but she wrote a book called Me. And, of course, somebody gave me the book, and I had to go right to On Golden Pond. And the first thing she said was, the two people who played on Golden Pond on stage were too young. Henry and I were the right age. <laughs> I just thought, oh, well, that puts us where we were. <laughs> <laughs> but it's also a testimony to you as an actor that you could play older. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Well, some people start out playing older people as well as young. I, mean, I also, you know, Marjorie Pinchwife was very young. Mm-hmm. So it's fun to play all different kinds. Now, Catherine Hepburn came and saw you in on Golden Pond. Yes, she did. And she came backstage afterwards and spoke with you? Did yes, she? she did. What was that conversation like? Oh, it was very polite. Uh-huh. Yeah, she was very pleasant. But actually, when I was, I took over for Driving Miss Daisy, uh, Jessie, uh, Jessica Tandy okay. came back, and I had worked with Hume and Jessica a couple of times, and Tom had worked with them. And she came back and sat in my dressing room after she had been asked to do the the movie. And she, what she said was, I don't see how they're going to make a movie out of this perfect little play. <laughs> well, they did. <laughs> they did. They did. So with with you originating the, these roles, but then not being cast in the movie, did, did you try for the movies? No. Something? No, you don't try for the lead in a uh-huh. movie. Uh-huh. They ask you to be a lead uh-huh. in a movie. Sometimes you get asked to try for a lesser part. I wasn't in any of the movies where I had somebody else doing the part I had started. That's not. That's very different. But it's interesting to hear you say that because around the time that we're we're talking about, somewhat surprisingly. You ended up starring in a science fiction movie with Sean Connery. I know. Well, it was interesting. Peter Hyams wrote and directed it and said that he wanted, he had always wanted to do um, a Western, but they were out of favor at the moment. So he made a space movie, a movie in space, kind of based on High Noon, which is what it was. And when... uh, 
he, I guess my agent told me that uh, the producers wanted Maureen Stapleton, and she had just she never flew. She had just done let something, alone going into outer space, right? But she had just done something in London and didn't want to go back. She had just come back and by boat and didn't want to go back. Well, Peter Hyams told me, I never asked. I never wanted Maureen Stapleton. You were the one I wanted. And I thought, well, that's nice to hear. <laughs> but um, it was really fun. And when I read the script, of course, I thought, oh, this is a nice part. And my husband read it and said, you're Doc, Ho- what's his name, Doc Holiday." Okay, corral. Right, right. But that was fun, and we took uh, four of the children over with us, and we all had a good time over Mm. there. Well, we just alluded briefly to Driving Miss Daisy. You were the original Daisy. No, no, Dana Ivey was the original. Yeah, but she uh, felt, and even though she was terrific, but she didn't want to stay playing somebody that old when she was. She's younger than I am. And um, she wanted to leave. And so I had been asked if I wanted to do it early on. And I couldn't because I had just agreed to do Little Murders for Jules Pfeiffer. And, you know, Jules, of course, said, of course, if you're offered a movie that pays you lots of money, I will understand well, Driving Miss Daisy was at Playwrights Horizons and, mm-hmm. and very little money, so I couldn't do it. And Dana was terrific. I, when they asked me to take over for Dana, I saw her do it, and she was wonderful. But she, understandably, she you know, wanted to play younger things if she could. So when you take over for someone like, like Dana Ivey, then how do you see the role? How do you interpret it? Do you... How, well, how, how do you make it your own? Well, I just keep going over the lines and uh-huh. thinking about it. That's all I ever do when I'm working on a part. And for some reason, and I think it's funny, Phil Bosco is the same way. If we understudied or took over for some part, you know, there are some people that say, I want it to be completely mine. I will not watch the other person doing it. And Phil, mm-hmm. I told Phil that somebody had said that. And he said, I w- I'll watch. I'll take whatever I need. <laughs> it's true. You just use what you find useful and discard what you don't. But watching somebody else's performance, and if you're going to do it, it doesn't throw me. I just, you know, put on the coat. It's probably also useful because you get to see how it how, yes how, how it, it plays how it plays and, and where you move yeah. yeah 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 so it can be as much a learning experience for the technical aspects as for the interpretation absolutely yeah yeah as we're strolling through your career we're spending a lot of time on the Broadway shows and we mention occasionally off Broadway but you've done a lot of off Broadway work as well and I want to ask uh, about a couple a perfect Ganesh that oh. you did the Terrence McNally play. Um, Love that. You and Enzo Caldwell. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us about that play a bit. What an interesting play. There have been people who have said to me, I think that's Terrence's best play. There's something about it. He had just come back from India with a friend. And the man who played the Ganesh, and all one summer, you know, we did it in the summer, and he had this foam rubber suit on all the time. He he and Terence went together to India, 
And the idea of the play came to Terence. I read it, and I just loved it. And I was the only one, including Joey Tillinger, the director, who had not gone to India. I'd never been to India. Everybody else had. And I'm going to India in February for the first time. (laughs) Just seeing what it looks like. And you'll go and go, oh, that's what that is. (laughs) (laughs) But really, it it is quite a lovely play. And I'm surprised that it's been, hasn't been revived anywhere since. But maybe it has in places that I don't know. It wasn't that difficult, really, to do. But it was very interesting. Play opened on Broadway in 1995 called The Heiress. You're very familiar with that because you won the Tony for that, your yes. second Tony. Yes. Tell us a little bit about the show and about, about your role. Oh, there again, it's a, a wonderful play that actually was written and produced some years before that. Uh, and Beatrice Strait, I think, played The Heiress in the first production. But Jerry Gutierrez really um, did a wonderful job with our production, and partly because I think he blended just here and there little parts of the movie in it. And he had a terrific cast. Cherry Jones was Catherine. Phil Bosco uh, was her father. And John Tenney, who is now in The Closer with me, actually, he's... um, he was a lovely young man. He was Morris Townsend. And it was so... Uh, the lighting was wonderful. The set was wonderful. And it was funny that Trish Connolly, who was also in it, she and I, at one point, said to Jerry, said to Jerry Gutierrez, you know, there's something wrong here. Uh, I'm sitting in the light, and Jerry is the star... And she's in the dark. And this, of course, was the scene in which uh, Catherine begins to realize that she's being ditched by her fiancé. And Jerry Gutierrez said, never mind, I love it. Well, of course, what it was was that she was in the dark while she was unaware. Mm -hmm. And she came into the light as she realized what was happening. Mm-hmm. But it was a very uh, popular production. Another off-Broadway play, which you did in a couple of incarnations and even, I think, played out of New York as well, The Exact Center of the Universe. Oh, seemed right. to be something that was was close to you. Yes, I guess it was. Um, Joan Vale Thorne was the playwright, and we did it at the Women's Project first. Um and Bethel Leslie, who died really shortly after we closed, uh, she couldn't do the the incarnation that happened down at the Century. And Sloane Shelton came in and d- did Bethel's part, and Marge Redmond did the third woman. And this came from jo- Jones memories of her mother and her mother's friends playing canasta in a in a treehouse hmm. in Hammond, Louisiana. And it was all about um, a mother who didn't want, really want to let go of her son. The son fell in love with a girl that the mother was kind of determined wasn't up to him. 
And, of course, it all worked out in the end. <laughs> and then we did it down in Florida, the Florida stage. Mornings at 7, another Tony nomination that was in uh, 2002, fairly recently. Uh, you played Ida Bolton. Yes. Who, who, was, who was Ida? What was the character? Oh, she was the one whose son was engaged to Myrtle. Homer was her son. And it was hard on Ida because it, he was her only son. And her husband, Carl, was kind of off by himself <laughs> doing things. So uh, actually, uh, the director wanted me to play another part, which is perhaps a little more noticeable. But I asked for Ida because she's, I don't know, there was something kind of funny about her. Hmm. And I love playing comedy. Well, what do you look for in, in a role when you first read a script? Do you have something in mind or, or do you Well, I want to be able to think that I can play it, for one thing. That I can understand the character well enough to do it and approach it. But I also start I want to know right away whether my body fits into her body and whether something just speaks to me about the play and the character. And I can't really say what that is, but uh, it definitely happens. You can find yourself thinking, "Uh uh-huh, I can do this. But more than once, that character has been a much older woman than than you would have been in your life. Yes, but that... um, as I say, I've known a lot of older people in my life, and their being older doesn't make them any less um, interesting or human. My parents knew quite a few older people, and I just, I was an only child, so I observed a lot. That was fun. As we're drawing to a close, we would be remiss in not speaking about your most recent Broadway appearance, which in some ways was almost full circle. You you spoke at the beginning of the program about Arena Stage and being in the company with George Grizzard, yes. and Seascape was sadly George's last appearance. Well, it was his second to last. It was you're right on Broadway. Yeah, yeah. But can you talk a little about that play, which is so much about the passing of time and yeah. where people are? You know in their lives. Well, it was quite a challenge, that play. And uh, it was fun to work on it primarily because of um, the cast was just terrific. I mean, George, working with George, it was really, we were like an old married couple. We Which is indeed so, what you were playing. <laughs> yes, but we were so familiar with each other because of we, all the work we'd done before. And um, he's, he was such a good actor. And he had done the play before. He'd done it up at Hartford yeah, Stage. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we had um, a couple of terrific young actors as the uh, lizards. Frederick Weller and Elizabeth and Marvel. Elizabeth Marvel. They, they were just wonderful. And um, Mark did such a good job with uh, directing it. But boy, I, he, he wanted, he kept particularly with me, the character of Nancy. He kept wanting me to try out different aspects, different emotions with her husband, George. And there were times when I just kind of thought, what are we getting at here? You know, what am I supposed to be shooting for? And after a while, and just 
getting it down and doing it over and over again. Edward came in, Edward Albee came in and just said, uh, everybody, you should remember this is a happy marriage. <laughs> I thought, oh, Hugh, <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. So I don't have to kind of try and think what went wrong. Why? Hmm. Because then it all kind of came clear. And it was fun to play, even when she got mad at him. And there were so many women later who would say to me, oh, that was my marriage. And of course, with the the husband not wanting to do anything and the wife sort of thinking, well, let's do something now. The children are grown up and out. Let's go to abroad. Let's go here and there. Why? <laughs> the husband just wanted to stay home. As we talk about your roles, I want to ask, and I hope I can could do this tactfully, <laughs> you are at an age where presumably you do not need to work anymore, and we see you constantly. Television, film, shows on Broadway, Seascape, Steelo Magnolias, Warnings at Seven, all in the past few years, off-Broadway, seen you at Roundabout, saw you in that wonderful Talking Heads monologue down at the Veneta oh. Lane, even a J.M. Barry play at the Tiny Mint Theater on 43rd Street. What drives you to keep doing the work? Well, I don't... People say, what are you doing next? I have no idea, unless it's, you know, another episode of The Closer. I just love doing it. Hmm. I think that's why we keep doing it, really, hmm. is um, I love the challenge of making a person come alive, either on stage, screen, or television. Um, it's It's fun. I've been imitating people since I was little, so I think that has a lot to do with it. And certainly some of the more high-profile electronic media appearances, whether it's Cheers, ER, you mentioned The Closer, now there is a familiarity with you that in all of those years of doing stage work, only a, a certain selection of people would get to know an actor. Is there a different experience for you now to be someone who is recognized? Well... I'm not recognized that much, really. Huh. I really am not. And um, it's funny when you see somebody who you've seen on the screen, you're not quite, first of all, a lot of times, you're not dressed up. You're not dressed for a certain role or a certain situation. And I remember walking up Fifth Avenue once and seeing this very attractive young woman in a mink coat and slight heels walking toward me. And I just thought, oh, God, I went to college with her. Who is she? I can't remember her name. She was passing, and I just said, hi. And she said, hi. Mm -hmm. And she passed, and I thought, well, that was Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> <laughs> so you see, that's what happens, I think. People, only if they get a chance to observe you for a length of time, are they likely to say something like, are you, have you been on television? Have I seen you in something? And that's what I usually get. Mm -hmm. Well, your, your husband, Tom, was an actor. Your yes. son, Tony, is an actor. You have yes. five other children besides Tony. Um, my son, Paul, who is Tony's older brother, he's an actor. Uh -huh. He's been at good speed uh, recently. 
and my daughter Amanda. She's an actress out in uh, Los Angeles. The other ones, my youngest son um, is a musician and teaches toddlers music. Mm. He's great with kids and has little kids concerts occasionally. He lives in Brooklyn and, you know, the the uh, classes are, one is in Manhattan and one is in Brooklyn, but it's fun. So you have a, at least four of them working in the in business. In the arts, in the, in yes, the arts, which yeah. is really not easy. Did you and, and your husband encourage them as children? To? Well, not noticeably. Uh-huh. Not Just really. maybe osmosis? It I think off? probably. It probably looked like fun. Because your own father was a judge. That's he, he right. He wasn't in entertainment at all. No. <laughs> but he was a good singer. Was he? He was always asked to sing at parties and things like that. And but and my mother started a drama club, apparently, at Simmons College when she was there, but never did it afterwards. Mm. But I have a daughter who is teaching performing arts outside in Cambridge, and a son who went out to California, who is now a teamster, of course, right <laughs> at the moment, out of work, <laughs> as are many. Well, you have an impending trip to India. Yes, I do. What, what else is impending in, in your life coming up? I don't know. I'm hoping another couple of episodes of The Closer. <laughs> but other than that, I don't know about um, uh, stage work at this point. I, a couple of things have been hinted at, but I really have no idea whether they're going to happen. Well, you've had some very uh, interesting, shall we say, juicy roles. Any yeah. one that was is kind of your favorite of all the different women you've played? I've had too many that I just loved. Uh-huh. I couldn't put my finger on a favorite. Too many. Any that you did not play that you had always wanted to? Chekhov. Real, a Chekhov play. I always wanted to do Chekhov. And the Neil Simon short stories was the only Chekhov that I've had a chance to do. Any particular character? Not particularly, no. The four really great Chekhov plays were the ones that I would have loved to tackle. Just mm-hmm. didn't have the opportunity. Well, Franny, Francis Sternhagen, enjoy your trip to India. Oh, thank you. Your forthcoming trip, and maybe yes. you'll find out what the real Ganesh really is. I know. <laughs> I know. Well, he's supposed to be a, a help to travelers, oh, okay. among many things. <laughs> okay. Thanks so much for being with us today on Downstage oh, Center. Thank you. Thank you, Franny. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that is a wrap, and thank you. The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.